Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Kaiser, Nihao. Nihao, Bernard. How are you? I'm well. And you're based in Beijing, right? I am. I'm here in Beijing where it's very smoggy today. And first of all, I have to thank you for helping me to arrange that interview with Andrew. On My pleasure. Research. Yes. My pleasure. And today, yeah, I heard it. It was terrific. You did a really good job. I'm, I'm very, very glad that I was able to introduce you. Yes. And thank you so much for that interview. And what, but for today, Sounds good. Yes. And if the audience don't know what I meant, as all of you would know, Kaiser Kuo is the head of corporate communications for Baidu. But his other life is the more of the interesting part of it, which I am going to get him to talk about today. So, Kaiser, let me start off with this. How did you actually get started in this whole intersection between technology, media, and culture? Well, um, I, I guess it goes back to, I, I was around technologists for much of my life. My father was an engineer. My older brother was in the natural sciences. I've always had an affinity for technology, but not much aptitude for it myself. My studies were all in the social sciences and in the humanities. When I found myself in China, I had uh, actually been playing in a, a, a rock band in the late 1980s. And then again, uh, when I was back in graduate school in East Asian studies during the early 90s, I would come back and forth to China and, and rejoin the band. And then I rejoined full-time between 96 and 99. After leaving the band in 99, I found myself working for an internet company as an editor, as actually editor-in-chief for a very promising young startup. And through that work, I got to know a lot of people who were involved in the early internet scene in China, and I was doing editorial work. So when that company folded, unfortunately, in 2002, it was kind of a natural segue for me to then kind of reinvent myself as somebody writing journalistically about technology. And of course, you also have built out a very impressive network in Beijing, because every time when I go to Beijing, the first thing I got is that I have to talk to Kaiser Kuo. So, and then you subsequently... <laughs> Involved in yourself with, I think, Ogilvy, Yuku, and then eventually lead up to your current role. You did a lot of work in corporate communication. So how is the media and tech industry like in China as a whole from what you have seen in, in the late 1990s to today, about 2015 then? Well, it's it's grown enormously fast. I mean, it's just it's almost mind-bogglingly fast how quickly the industry has grown, and you know it's in lock pace with the with the growth of the internet itself. Uh, when I started in in early '99, working in the internet, there were probably less than a million people online. Today, there are probably close to 700 million people online in China, and the internet has become something you know very every day. It's actually it's really the the, the crucible of culture in in China. So whether you're interested in culture, in technology, in the, the impact of technology on culture, on society, I mean, you cannot take yourself away from the internet. It's tremendous. I mean, there are a gazillion interesting characters, interesting stories. So for anyone who is interested in it, into to telling the stories, whether as a communications professional or as a reporter, there are an inexhaustible supply of fascinating stories to tell. And I know you started a podcast. I think it's already hundred over episodes. I listened to it with a pop-up Chinese studios called Seneca Podcast. 
So That's I right. guess the question is, what's the story and the motivation behind this podcast? Really, it was a, a, a fluke. Um, my partner, uh, Jeremy Goldcorn and I, you know, we've been long, long-term friends. I mean, he was here in the mid-1990s, and we got to be friends by about 96 or 97. Both of us, you know, we were just talking one evening in the year 2000, probably in March of 2000, and realized that there really wasn't anything good in terms of podcasts that was specifically about China, about current affairs in China. Between the two of us, we probably knew everyone we'd want to have on the show, or we'd certainly not want for guests. We are both people who enjoy talking about issues related to China. And I figured, you know, people would want to join in the conversation, just give them the sense that they had dropped into a conversation among friends who were talking about uh, pertinent issues. Jeremy hit on the brilliant idea of reaching out to Dave Lancashire at, at Pop-Up Chinese. He was already running this a podcast-based Chinese language learning system. He had a studio, he had a domain and, and bandwidth that he was already paying for. And so it was a, a, a very convenient uh, partnership where he would host for us, he would do our production, you know, kind of light editing on, on the thing, uh, allow us to use his his facilities, and we would presumably bring some some customers to him while he would give us a ready-made audience of people who were already interested in Chinese language and would probably also be interested in, in Chinese history and politics and culture. With the hundreds of discussions you have on the podcast, what are some of your kind of all-time favorites? Like what are the kind of issues that actually got you really excited with both you and your co-hosts? Yeah, I mean, the, the the great thing about the podcast is that it ranges all over the place. It goes from, you know, very, very serious party politics to down to very street level things and sometimes some quite frivolous or just just entertaining topics. Maybe if I could just a couple of examples from the the sort of more highbrow stuff. You know, we often talk to noteworthy academics or or authors or public intellectuals. We've had everyone from you know, Timothy Garton Ash from Oxford University to the very eminent China scholar Orville Shell to the Indian writer Pankaj Mishra who came on and talked about his book, From the Ruins of Empire, Rana Mitter, who recently did one which was about the parade, uh, the anti-fascist parade and, and the changing discourse on China's war with Japan. And yeah, he is a, he, uh, that was probably my, my very favorite famous journalist like Evan Osnos, who uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for his book that we talked about. We, we talked to him on, on quite a number of occasions, but the one I would recommend to listeners is the, it's called the Evan Osnos exit interview where he, he does his kind of uh, uh, on the eve of his departure from China, came in and talked to us. But then, yeah, some really ordinary folks. There was a, a guy named David Weeks who came on and talked about high school debate uh, tournaments in China, which he organizes. And he was it was brilliant. It was a great show. And a guy named Colin Chinnery, who records the sounds of old Beijing, you know, all the the, the, the calls of the vendors in, in the old hutongs of, of the capital and the sounds that they make. And so uh, we did a whole podcast just on that. There's a huge variety of good stuff. I think you'll, you'll all enjoy it. I guess from China, from 1995 to 2015, a lot of things have changed. It have evolved very, very <laughs> major uh, structural changes. I think even the internet itself is kind of leapfrogged even the West in certain things as well. Yeah, Based on today. The interesting question now is about the Great Firewall of China. I know, I mean, when I go to China, I have to basically become a mobile first user because that's the only way where using roaming, I could actually access some of the services that are banned in China. So there's this so-called... Oh, you great, just get a VPN. Yeah, right? yeah. There's the Great Firewall of China, or sometimes my friend Gang would call it the Great Intranet of China. 
So <laughs> how is the government now looked at internet? How are they basically uh, clamping it down? Is it only based on topics? And how do people su- circumnavigate to get news out of China then? Uh, I mean, I think the way you phrase this question suggests maybe some of the misconceptions that people mm, have about the internet. I mean, the idea, for instance, that that you know they're they're they need to circumvent it all. I think that that we maybe tend to overestimate the number of people who are actually interested in engaging in political topics to begin with, in in topics that are sen- sensitive or censored. Mm. Uh, we also overestimate the extent to which people want to visit sites that are outside of China. You know, ninety-seven or so percent of traffic originating in China is for uh, sites that are also hosted in China. Page requests are basically internal. And uh, as it turns out, that's not really just because of the Great Firewall. It's mostly because of cultural linguistic things. Now, that said, for sure, uh, in the last few years, and Xi Jinping, uh, the government has certainly clapped down more, not only blocking more sites from outside of China, You know, now quite a number of, of news sites that were not blocked in 2007-89 are now blocked. And, uh, you know, of course, internet censorship is more aggressive domestically, which is, is more to the point. The, the way we've decided on the Great Firewall as the metaphor that we all go for, it's become in the minds of many people a kind of new Iron Curtain. Uh, Iron Curtain 2.0 is, is how uh, Lockman Tsui described it. I think that in a lot of people's minds that suggests that behind this Great Firewall people are living life very much as they did behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe before the collapse of Soviet Communism. And that's not a very accurate uh, picture. As you know from having been here, the Internet, despite the limitations on it, is extremely vibrant. There's a lot of not just commercial activity, of course, you know, of course there's a lot of commercial activity, but there's also quite a lot of, of, of very lively discourse on politics, on culture, on economics, on, on religion, on all sorts of topics. Not all of it, of course, is yeah. you know, free, but <laughs> probably more than most people but imagine. You know, this is interesting that you say this because the Chinese language is a very metaphorical language. So every time right. when they want to have this kind of political di- discourse, they have to ch- make those metaphors and they keep changing metaphors in order to get to the message itself. Sure, I, I noticed this when I'm observing people, Weibo yeah. and all that. Is it is it a way for people to actually express discourse? I mean, whether expressing the dailies of everyday life or even their pol- own political and social views about things? In China, I think it's it's only when they are talking about topics that they know are going to be circumscribed that they need to resort to that kind of, of you know, as you say, metaphorical language, or often it's just wordplay, very clever puns and so forth mm-hmm. to get around. Yeah, and interesting, that's, I, I think that that's a, a form of creativity that, that uh, I think often creativity kind of flourishes amidst kind of adversity. When, when you sub- try to cir- circumscribe something, you perforce make people more creative. I, I recall that conversation with Clay recently because I did it within the in Shanghai with him. And he made this really interesting point that because Chinese companies are now going global, right? And That's if right. they were to ban certain news sites, means that they also ban the access of information, which actually limits the Chinese company's capability to compete with the other global companies. Yeah, so that's he, the, yeah. the point that he made in yeah. the, his book on Xiaomi, and I think yeah. he's very much right, yeah. Yeah, I guess if given that's the case, don't you think that if is essentially this firewall is going to start to leak because the, uh, the Chinese government wants to grow the economy? I mean, growing the economy is, is on the top of their concern. Wouldn't they actually think about trying to allow more leakage because they need their companies to actually compete with the world out there? I think that social stability comes first in their minds. Mm. What's the use of of having companies that are competitive globally if you're, you know, if if there are burning tires on every street corner? They really um, believe that a totally 
unfettered internet would lead to some kind of uh, social chaos. I happen not to share that opinion, but I think that if you if you look at the way that these ideas are presented to them, the way that that internet freedom is is argued, for example, by a a press corps, a foreign press corps that they see as kind of inimically hostile to them, if it's constantly being appended to the names of some Arab Spring revolution or or, or color revolution, they are very wary of it. They are very very leery of 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 anyone who has a, a, a internet freedom agenda. They they are that way because most of the time the United States and, and Western European countries and our, our non-governmental organizations, we make no secret of our belief that a totally free internet would pose a significant challenge to their continuing hold on, on power. If you believe, as they, they seem to, that that is the case, you have very little incentive to to loosen the internet, but I guess this where the this where I was thinking of the economic incentives, and also given that you know between two thousand to two thousand ten, there is a is a high growth decade for China. I mean, we, right. we are seeing some. I think at a point in time, Wen Jiabao wanted something like eight percent GDP year on year growth, but I mean now the growth rates are actually slowing down. The Chinese government's legitimacy is also built on having a strong and vibrant economy. What are the kind of areas that you think one should watch out? Within the economy well, itself. First of all, I I don't think that internet um, censorship is a meaningful curb on economic growth right mm. now. I, I I honestly don't think okay. so. I mean, I would like to believe that. I would like to be able to use that argument if if that were actually going to help. But uh, you know, there is a lot of economic growth to be derived from the internet without freeing it in in right. any meaningful way. That I think there there are many areas in which internet thinking, uh, the efficiencies that the internet, big data, artificial intelligence can bring to traditional industry sectors yeah. that have not been exploited yet. Haven't these are untapped, and we're still at the very very beginning of it. Especially in the services, in in major industry verticals like healthcare, like education, like banking. Of course, the, there there are plenty of areas where the internet has not really done its magic yet economically, mm. uh, and none of these really require it to open up to you know the Facebook and the Google and and the the, the YouTubes of the world. It's also a manufacturing based economy, right? And it's now gradually moving towards the service. Based economies. I mean, that's right. If you think about the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, they are create. They are becoming more and more service based. And then in Shenzhen, you have this entire. I think China, China is actually very open to building new stuff. I mean, as long as it's exported out, they they want to be the lead in innovation, even in manufacturing. That's why they had their two zero two five made in China program. That's similar to what the Germans did. Right. So do do you think that this kind of the economic structure will change as it gradually? Moves Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, already, I think, you know, low-end manufacturing jobs are moving elsewhere. I mean, this is just uh, labor rates are growing. The, the, the shift to the service sector is, is really pronounced, especially in the cities. I mean, in the U.S., the service sector makes up about 80% of GDP, and in, in China, it's only like 47%. Yes. There's, a, there's really ample room for the sector to grow. And incidentally, I mean, I think it's it's uh, something that the government really wants to see happening, that they're they're, they're pushing for. And I mean, I should add, it's a huge role that the, the internet companies can play in making it happen faster and more efficiently. What we call O2O, all the major internet players are are, are deeply involved in that, probably none more so than Baidu, mm. you know, interested in, in, in seeing that happen. Yes, one of the interesting things that we notice is that the move to digitization, even for traditional businesses like banks, insurance, is actually much faster. It seems like they leapfrog 
away from pen and paper into the digital world very That's quickly. Right. And I think that this is a very big misconception of people who are looking in China that they not thinking a lot about what is the actual on the ground kind of innovation or leapfrogging. I mean, social media into mainstream media is so much more integrated as compared to the U.S. That's right. Yeah. I think, you know, part of that is that they're just hung up on this idea. You know, they, they believe because they believed correctly for so very long that Chinese really aren't as, as nimbly innovative. Uh, and they, they believe, you know, correctly that the, the internet in China is censored and they kind of have this idea that a censored internet will choke off innovation. Which is something I believe will happen, but not in the short term. And, and because there's also the way that there's so many things in the in China that's happening. So media was able to evolve without without a censored internet. You know, manufacturing is able to move with that. That's why they have such a great in- integration with electronics and software as well. So yeah, I mean, the whole hardware you know value chain is here. So it makes it really you know you can iterate faster. You're you're really close to the OEM. You don't have to fly back and forth across an ocean. Yes, and Shenzhen is a very great port for shipping Absolutely. out right to, Absolutely. to Hong Kong, and from Hong Kong moving out to the world. So it's kind of like China is this little paradox that sometimes even for for me who who sits in somewhere in Singapore and looking at it, it's very, very interesting and very exciting. I think it's four times the population of US. Yeah. Yeah, roughly. and it's four times the weight of that. But how about culturally and digitally? I mean, what, what have you seen in, in terms of cultural changes and even like the culture of uh, consumerism culture and the rise of the middle class? Well, I think, you know, these two things have gone hand in hand, you know, the digital revolution and this massive change in culture. It's it's interesting to see how an internet culture has really evolved in China so quickly. I mean, in, in many ways, it does resemble the world that many of your listeners are probably more familiar with. You know, it has its cute cat videos, it has its memes, it has all of its, um, you know, the internet humor has, you know, very clever uh, uh, photoshopping of photos. And, and there there's a lot of, you know, deeply acerbic uh, cynicism that makes its way, you know, tr- tremendous humor. But I think there are a couple of characteristics of it that I think are, are very interesting. One is that because China is a little more culturally homogenous, it hasn't developed a lot of very distinct subcultures because there isn't huge ideological divides. There are ideological divides, but they aren't crippling the way they are in, say, the United States, where you know, people on the left and people on the right in the U.S. just do not talk to each other. Instead, you see the Internet in China woven into a more contiguous and tightly woven whole so that anything that happens on in one little obscure corner, if it has you know sufficient resonance, it'll vibrate the whole web. Everyone will know that that meme, that joke, that video, that 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 little saying, that new piece of slang. It, it makes its way across. And so there is a greater sense of people who are online is belonging to one massive community. And That's I, uh, very different from the U.S. Are there any other, other subtle cultural changes that you have observed as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's millions. I think that, that certainly, and this is part of the reason why the Chinese government is, is very wary about what, what, what might happen. It had, at least for a while, between, say, the years 2009 and 2012, mm-hmm. become quite a functional public sphere mm-hmm. where, you know, you didn't go a week without seeing some instance in which a an official who who had uh, committed some awful malfeasance was was he had to come up offense because he was caught doing whatever bad deed he had done yeah. by someone on the internet and and you know there there was a, a real hope for a while there 
that you were seeing kind of this more deliberative, more participatory polity emerging out of this, that it was at least ad hoc react, reaction to this public opinion. That may have changed since Xi Jinping came to power, but I think that the latent force of that is still certainly present. How about the rise of the middle class then? What is kind of their consumerism culture? Are they really, you know, the, the so-called the Chinese dream now that Xi Jinping is talking about? How does, yeah, what, yeah. What's, what's the kind of vision that or a typical Chinese will live? Is, is it more really consumer culture? Or? Yeah. I think that, you know, a lot of people have, have, have said this, and, and to some extent I, I agree, that, you know, historically middle classes have tended to be the ones who have pushed for institutions of accountability, you know, democratic institutions or other ways in which to curb political power of elites. In the Chinese middle class case, it seems that they may have been sort of bought off by a co combination of consumerism or nationalism, that they seem to be invested enough in this, the, the dream of stability, of national rejuvenation, and of national wealth and power that the government is peddling, that they are n not as interested in any kind of, of meaningful institutional curbs on state power. So different from is other it, places. Yeah, is, I think... It's similar to Singapore, where the... General middle class is actually desensitized from the political things, but it's more focused on the economy and the safeguarding of their uh, consumerism. Yeah, I think there's there are deep cultural roots in that, and because Singapore is so predominantly Chinese, I think that that may may apply to Singapore as well. Yeah. Part of it is that the middle class sees itself as kind of inheriting, having inherited the role of the scholar literati elites of old. They may not be actively part of the scholar officialdom, not part of the technocratic bureaucracy that now controls China, also Singapore, but they feel a kind of similar, they identify with them. They, they sort of feel that they are the children of May 4th in, in some sense. Because, you know, middle class people in Chinese, in China, tend to be college educated. They, they, they are, they, they identify as jishifens, as intellectuals. And so they take on some of the traditional roles that, that cult, Chinese culture assigned to that class. And they believe, I think, that they can work a kind of moral suasive control over that ultimately, you know, they do wield some power over the, the state. And if the state fails to to deliver on its end of, of the bargain, that they do have some sanction. And then this new Chinese consumer has a different thing. They have a smartphone. So I want one of the things I'm really very interested to know because I know that even from afar, because I'm not inside China, I know that the way how a typical Chinese consumer uses a mobile phone is very different from anybody in the US, you know, in Europe, or even in, in other parts of Asia, like Singapore, etc. Mm, yeah, how, how, how does the Chinese consumer use a smartphone in the social media services? Like, for example, we have Weibo for you know, microblogging, you have your Baidu for search, for maps, and you have well, your WeChat with, as well. Yeah. yeah, let's start with WeChat, which is mm. probably, you know, by, I mean, since it is, it is by far the most commonly used app in China. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably don't go more than an hour of any waking day without having to be on that app at some point. It's the main, it's by far the dominant messaging app. It's one of these Swiss army knives. Chinese apps tend to be these these enormous, uh, just multi-layered, all-in-one super apps. You can send people money, you can buy tickets, you can send people geolocations, you can, of course, chat with people, you can use it for OTT phone calls. 
You can use it for video chatting. It's it's quite a powerful app. And then, of course, you can also use it for microblogging, you know, because it, it's, it's powerfully social as well. You can post things, you can yeah. share articles. It's quite an accomplishment. I don't think there's anything like it. There is no equivalent. Is is if you took Facebook, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, and Snapchat, Instagram, rolled them all into one. Yep. And uh, you had that. And no, and then plus your PayPal, plus your you know, whatever whatever you want. It's it's pretty astonishing. Baidu, Baidu, I mean, we said we weren't going to talk about Baidu, but I think this is really important. Baidu Search and Baidu Maps they play a different role here than they than the you know the equivalents would be in the U.S. They're so much better at actually connecting you with services in the world around you. From Baidu Maps, you can just simply click on a little button that says Fujin, you know, the vicinity, and from that you can book tables in restaurants. Book a, a, a favorite masseuse at your favorite spa or something like that. You can, uh, you can buy movie theater tickets for you know an upcoming show and actually buy, you know select your seats and, and pay for them. You can order dinner out. You can order an Uber without ever having to go to the Uber app. You can do it entirely from within the Baidu Maps uh, environment and, and a plethora of other things. All of which you can also do from Baidu Search. It's it's really pretty astonishing the kinds of services that are you know quite literally at your fingertips. One one of the interesting thing you brought up about WeChat is that you haven't seen anything anywhere. In fact, from my observation, Facebook is cloning WeChat now in the U.S. Yeah, I think that they're starting to take some signals from it. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I don't want a second. I, I, I think yeah, Facebook. No, I, but there, there is, just, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how much WeChat has evolved as a platform because I think usually people take a lot of platform cues from the US internet services. I think WeChat is probably one of the few where even other services are trying to build their applications. I know Uber got their app rejected a couple of times on WeChat. <laughs> no yeah. doubt. No, yeah. No. So so that that is the kind of thing. But what? But how about social media services? They also like to microblog. They like to send messages. Yeah, well, you know right? that that's really. I mean, the Weibo, consu- how is the cultural behavior it, like? Social media culture like? You know, so Weibo has 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 dropped off precipitously. I mm. mean, Weibo use has really fallen off. People, I I don't look at it anymore. If I'm interested in social engagement, it's going to be on Weixin. It's become entirely a mobile phenomenon. Really. Yeah, uh, Weixin has very much taken over it because you know there, there's so much more control over you know, who sees what you what you're writing. You know, you're you've got you know many more levers to control how far something travels or you know how many people are going to 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 read whatever it is that you've written or posted. It's it's um it's much more intimate. There's also a a sense that I suppose it's more private that maybe there aren't the prying eyes of, of people who you ne- don't necessarily want reading what you're writing mm. it's more private in that sense where like the, but in, in fact the, it's yeah, the friend circle you can actually send out like pictures you share stuff I, I know I like to use the Peng Chen to communicate with my Chinese friends actually that's right. About my daily life. And so it's quite interesting. One thing I, I probably should share about WeChat is on the day I turned on WeChat in Singapore. So I was very curious. So I wanted to see how many of my friends on. And it's funny that actually three quarters of my contact list was mainly all my friends from the Western world. They were all connected on WeChat. Wow. You have no idea. I had a <laughs> shock. I was like, and I was like, to me, I said, this American guy is on WeChat? No, that can't be right. And then when I started, because I was actually looking for like friends like Gang, you know, Xiao Xiao, all, all of them. And I was spending more time trying to look for my Chinese friends on the phone. <laughs> it, was quite, it was quite hilarious because when I turned on it, it was really, really interesting. I mean, what about cultural attitudes in terms of using the internet? I mean, you know, there's, there's always this subculture of memes and, you know, like something viral. 
something. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that's all happening. I mean, in, in, in very much the same way as you'd see it in the U.S., except, like I said, I think that there's there are less subcultural divisions here. You know, there, there tends to be sort of a, a mainstream culture that everything is a part of. You know, I mean, you'd see the same thing, say, in music, right? Most people listen to the same genre of music, which is, you know, kind of Taiwan or Hong Kong-influenced in, popular, you, you mainstream popular music. music. Uh, I don't. I'm not a fan of Chinese music at all, actually. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, okay. I don't like it. Okay. Now, let's move away from the digital digital part. I mean, you live in China. What is the biggest misconceptions about China from the outside world? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. I guess my answer to this one is not so much that it's about misconceptions about China as it's misconceptions about the way that history actually has unfolded in in Western Europe in its colonial offshoots, you know, mm. the, the Americas. I think that, I, I guess I used to think that the, the problem was that Europeans and Americans were not, you know, familiar enough with Chinese history, that they didn't understand the, the Chinese historical experience. I think that the problem is actually much deeper than that, that it's that most Europeans and Americans are completely unfamiliar with what made their own historical experience diverge so drastically from the historical experiences of all the rest of the world's great civilizations. Oh, that's an I interesting mean, viewpoint. Yeah, yeah so I mean, they, they sit basically on this side, let's say, you know, the developed side of the chasm, and they, they have their great institution, the um, scientific method. Mm -hmm. They have modern capitalism. They have, you know, the values of the Enlightenment, about the inalienable rights of individual humans, and about, you know, human rights. Governing institutions that, that are effective institutions, but are also constrained by rule of law and, and there are, uh, you know, systems of accountability like elections and things like this. These are all things that they, they, I understand that they would expect the rest of the world to just see the obvious appeal of and, and want to, to implement. And I think it's, it's odd that they don't stop to think, how did we get here? Yeah. How did we develop all these institutions? How did this? And, and if they even do a, a fairly cursory study, you know, just spend a, a few months in, in pretty serious reading, they will realize how contingent and how fragile and how unlikely this really was and how the, they really are the exception. And it's not the norm, not the form for the rest of humanity. It's, and yeah. uh, you end up looking across this chasm saying, you know, why are you over there still, China? Why can't you catch up on, on human rights, catch up on democracy, catch up on rule of law. This is the problem. And mm -hmm. most Americans and most Europeans, they have a very teleological view of history. That is, they think that it's all, you know, moving toward one specific goal. And that goal is to be like us. And I know, I do not really believe that that's the case. Yeah. I, I don't believe that, that, that um, I, I actually think that it is a desirable end state, but I think that I have a much more uh, realistic view on what is what it actually takes to get there. It's interesting you mentioned this because I, I was always having this issue when I was studying in Cambridge when I was explaining to my Western friends about China because I, I grew up in a very traditional Chinese family. I learned Chinese graffiti and ch studied Chinese history. And one of the interesting things that always comes out from all the, what I read about China is that it doesn't go expand beyond its borders. It always tries to, it, it has its own civilization. It grows its own technology. I guess printing press was also done in China. Algorithms were mm -hmm. done in China. In fact, the, um, according to the master of my college, who is actually a scholar on China, his name is uh, Sir, Sir Jeffrey Lloyd. And he said that the China Astronomical Bureau is actually the longest serving scientific institution in the world. 
Yeah, for that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And somehow these things about the the perception from the Chinese viewpoint, when you try to explain it to the West, it doesn't resonate with them. It's like how could a civilization, the Chinese, doesn't want to expand beyond its borders? You know? Well, I mean, yeah. it's arguable whether China has never expanded beyond its border, or whether it even had a conception of borders. Yeah, yeah correct. Because many people would say that it didn't. But yeah, I, I don't think yeah. it's you know, it's in the same category. It's never been a nakedly imperialist state uh, right. outside of you know its continental borders. I mean, people in Tibet or in Xinjiang might completely disagree with this. Yeah, I mean, that those are the more recent history. But if you were to look back, in, you know, in in Chinese history, that you go beyond. Well, even then, we, we could argue about that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> The Han civilization really only started in, you know, the floodplain of the Yellow River, and then Correct. beyond that was all expansion at the expense of other non-Han people, right? Mm, true, and and it, it just has this change of of that. But what about like, for example, nowadays people talk about a lot of China versus U.S. on trade and the fear of Chinese companies acquiring. I mean, for not just U.S. companies, but also other you know European companies. What do you see? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, again, it, it, it doesn't surprise me uh, mm. to see these fears or whatever developing, and the, the, but that doesn't mean it you know, doesn't fail to sadden me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of zero-sum thinking out there. Even if it doesn't dominate American foreign policy and trade policy, I think that the image that's being projected and picked up by China, uh, by Beijing, is, is one that looks like kind of a, a species of economic containment. When the U.S., you know, makes blunders like trying to talk all of its allies out of joining AIIB, you know, the uh, Asia Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank. And when, you know, the U.S. launches TPP and somehow the message comes across, whatever the truth of it is, that everyone is invited to this party except for you, China. When, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations just recently published this long, weighty paper that basically called for, you know, balancing China. Um, what is Beijing going to read from all of this? It's, it's not productive. It's it's I think there's a lot of very, very bad policy making, uncoordinated policy making toward China that's actually driving China toward more truculent positions that it, that aren't helping anybody. Yes, there's also the other issue about the strategy tax. I think Clay mentioned in, in that conversation I have is that think a look at most of the Chinese technology internet services companies, they have to manage two platforms, one for China and one from outside China. Do you think that this would be right. increasingly but there difficult aren't for there are very many who have tried to do this. But yeah, I mean, mm. it's daunting. I think that there will be, yeah, many companies that will face this. I mean, Xiaomi is the first obvious example. But, uh, you know, I think even WeChat, you know, we've seen in, in its minor expansions outside have, all, have already run into difficulties with this, this, this particular issue. I think Clay is onto something there, yeah. And you, and you think that this actually is going to be the reality for Chinese companies as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it will be. I, I, I'm not op actually very optimistic about most Chinese companies and their, uh, you know, ex their 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 ability to expand. They they don't really. Most of them just don't possess that kind of DNA. Most of them are, and I would include Baidu in this. I think most of them lack a natural feel for how to to play in international markets. I think a lot of them. I mean, you know, China is a very very different place. The rules you learn in China, they I think some some features of China. The fact that it is half developed, half developing, and to be successful in this market, you have to straddle, you know, the coastal developed, very tech savvy markets, and then the very developing world type, very low level of you know, of technological sophistication markets in the hinterland. That will give some companies a leg up. They'll they'll know how to identify technologies, products, and services that are appropriate for developing world markets. 
But I don't think it's going to give much help in Western Europe or in North America. So a lot of what I've been observing now is that a lot of Chinese companies, instead of going to the US market first, they go to the emerging markets. For example, I think Xiaomi go to India, Southeast Asia, I think <clears throat> Brazil, Brazil, no, and even Africa, right. for example. But I think there was... Smart strategy. This, yeah, this is smart strategy. And in fact, it's something very interesting. Someone pointed out this, this comment is that China have a billion population. If they can develop a technology that a billion people could use, they actually have the capacity of actually getting to much more of the emerging market population. I mean, we have a 7 billion population in the world, right? And That's right. the emerging market is three, 4 billion, definitely, at least. At least. And that 4 billion population, whatever China develops, would probably put them maybe the first to market to be touched by the emerging markets. Do you think that's that, right. that would be, yeah, that's, that would that's be exactly where the competitive advantage is going to be? As well? Absolutely. I think, like I said, yeah, I mean, they, they're used to it. They, they know how to develop products that are intended to be used by people in developing markets. When American companies, they, 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 when they, they, they will, you know, these days you look at what Google has been doing, what Facebook is doing, they will, you know, look at developing world markets and, and they do it with a, a almost a... First world problem. Well, yeah, yeah you know, it's 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 satellites to beam, yeah. which is great and and quite noble and, and and all that stuff. But what about the products in people's hands? I mean, are they? I think there there's this notion. I think that some people are are um, walking around with it to make your products work for sub say sub-Saharan African markets or for you know the 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 less for India, say out of Delhi and Bangalore and Mumbai. You need to dumb them down, just make them really you know simplified versions of them. We don't we don't believe that's the case at all. I, I don't believe that's the case at all. I think that the challenge is actually to make smarter technology that is able, that is, you know, has more naturalistic and more intuitive interfaces, that is able to understand spoken, you know, thickly accented natural language because, you know, the voice, I think, will ultimately be the right interface to use. It'll be as revolutionary as Andrew Eng maybe already has told you as the touchscreen was. So voice is something that we're really focused on. I have been seeing a lot of innovation in voice. I think Andrew is is, 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 is a lot focused on that and I think it's, it's going to be interesting because I have actually been observing friends sending me Chinese spoken messages through WeChat. So mm-hmm. it's, it's good. I think they, I think it may be that voice may just take off in China instead of in the US. Yeah, you know, I think we're going to get to 50% voice within the next five or six years. So I'm, I'm going to see a voice-like, Twitter-like service happening from China. Uh, I just, yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay, uh, but I want to talk, I have a, I have, to have a question because I, I spoke to Gan, who's uh, been helping me to produce the show now. He wanted him to ask you a little bit about your Quora content. So I know okay. you spent a lot of time on Quora. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know... What weekends and stuff? Yeah, sure. I love yes. I love Quora. Question: Why do you choose Quora as the platform? Because I'm too lazy to think of topics to blog about on my own. I have the podcast, which is wonderful because it's conversational. But sometimes, you know, I, I did need something to to get my own ideas out uh, instead of just you know in an interview format. I'm sure you feel the same frustration. You're a man with a lot of ideas, right? And so, and but blogging is is different. I I, I like. The, the Q&A format of Quora to be able to look at a whole bunch of different questions that people have asked and then say, aha, this is, an, is this a question that I'm interested in providing a, a thoughtful answer to? Mm-hmm. So it actually gives me, you know, uh, somebody like me, uh, uh, the chance to, to be inspired by somebody's question. So, so do you think that the people who read your Quora post actually understand something that's more about China today? Uh, I, I've got a pretty decent following there. I mean, it's uh, I've got a lot of people reading my stuff. 
and I get a lot of very positive feedback on it. So yeah, I think it's it's helping. Hey, you know, you you've read it. <laughs> yes, I've read it. it well, I, mean, I think I should actually get, put a uh, show notes on it to get get your Quora user handle. Then I think they can, then my audience can go. Yeah, it's just it's just it's, you know, it's just my, right. Just my name. That's right. Yeah. Okay. It's all a real name platform too, which is great. We have heard and seen a lot of uh, prominent foreigners who spent years in China have left. I guess there are reporters like Evan Osnos and Mary Kay registered. And I mean, business people, Bill Bishop, I think is one of the co-founders of Tudo, right? If I'm not wrong. No, he's not. He's not. He, he had nothing to do with Tudo. Oh, no. sorry. What's this? You think about some Mark Vanderkees. Mark Vanderkees. So what was the co- who was the co-founder of Tudo that just left? If that, that was, that was it. Mark Vanderkees was oh, so Mark Vanderkees, Kees, sorry. Yeah. So you also recently shared that you may move back to the US sometime. Uh, I am. I'm moving back in 2016. You know, I'll still spend a lot of time in China, but you know, I, I want to give my children the opportunity to have the kind of same bicultural exposure that I did. I think it was really advantageous for me. I think it would be really advantageous for them to have it. So I think it would be a little bit selfish of me to stay here because I have a, a wonderful life here. My wife has a wonderful life here. Mm-hmm. But the kids, you know, they, they need to have more of an American exposure at this critical juncture. Mm. So yeah, she's just That's- moving back for the kids basically. Yeah, and I'm not going to stay there, you know, in any sense permanently. I'll, I'm I'm sure I'll spend, you know, a good quarter of the year still back here. Oh, uh, so Bill Bishop is actually quite negative about what is happening to the U.S.-China relationship. His <laughs> yeah. last appearance. So, question: Do you actually agree with him? Um, but is it no, is no, it really is it really worrying that the people who are knowledgeable about China are leaving now? I don't know. I mean, Bill is very knowledgeable about China. I mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd put myself in that same category, but I I don't agree with him uh, in terms of the level of negativity that he shows. I mean, I think there are plenty of reasons to be negative, but you know, it's a glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing. I I tend to see it. I I, I still think that there are a lot of areas that are are showing you know healthy signs of improvement, military to military relations, uh, uh, all sorts of other things. But but also, I think Bill Bill again. I mean, he he's very very well informed on what's happening. There's there are a few people who who are better informed about what's happening, but he he focuses really on a lot of current of, of, uh, events on what's happening in the here and now. Doesn't perhaps spend as much time as I would trying to situate that mm. in a in a, a but kind of deeper, historically deeper context and doesn't maybe spend as much time thinking, okay, so what does this look like through Beijing's eyes, through through throughout Beijing's windows? You know, he maybe has a, a more hard and fast idea about, you know, he 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 wants he he's you know with no hesitation. He's thinking of the interests of the United States of America. I too am an American citizen and my prime primary loyalties do and always will lie there. But that that I, I I don't think that 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 precludes me from also trying to see how we can really create you know situations that that, that are you know more than zero. So I I can I can yeah I'll always it's like a bridging right. You want to bridge the relationship between both you yeah, and China, agree, and I think that there is the middle path as well. You need not necessarily be a zero sum game. Right. From I mean from that's there. that's really what the, the the binding theme in my life has been every every job that I've ever held, every hobby that I've ever taken a keen interest in, they're all around one theme, which is trying to bridge US-China. Because, you know, I try to kind of inhabit both those identities. And so uh, it's maybe, you know, it it, it has its origins in kind of the the, the psychology. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in preparing for this interview, I've actually listened to the Seneca podcast. So even if you're not in China, you still be continuing it, right? Yeah, I will be. Sorry, I, I fall in the love with it, so I'm going to listen to it every every week. Then. Wonderful. 
that's wonderful. Yeah. And I have become a big fan of your podcast as well. So yeah, it's great. No, no, no. So um, you you still be continuing that and basically talk uh, also try to bridge that 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 narrative. Yeah, yeah. In the in the U.S., I think there, especially in the Bay Area, there are plenty of people who are are working professionally on China related issues. So I'll have access to them. And as I say, I'll be traveling back to China very frequently, and which, and and we'll make sure to to do a lot of podcasting from from China whenever I'm here. Mm, cool. And so uh, it will continue. It may change a bit in form. You know, I've thought about trying to add maybe a section where we do some reported news magazine type type stories from it, but that's not for sure yet. Cool. So, penultimate question: What are some of the kind of less obvious news sources that you'd like to recommend? To audience, to sort of want to learn a lot more about China and the internet in China. Less obvious news sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the obvious ones being all mainstream media, of course. I guess Quora. I mean, for one thing, there's actually some very very smart people writing on Quora on, on the China topic. Less obvious news sources. I mean, I, I guess I, I assume everyone's already subscribing to Bill Bishop's wonderful Sinocism newsletter. So I think he says cynicism, so it sounds even more like cynicism, but S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M dot com. I I think that unless you have no day job and plenty of of, of time on your hands, you're not going to need much more than that. If you actually go through that and read even, you know, the the first few paragraphs of every story that he links to daily, you'll you'll have plenty to read and you'll you'll end up with you know deep knowledge. But I think that that more important than reading news on China, if you really want to gain a good understanding, it it's read history. And again, like I said earlier on, not just the history of China, but read the history of, of Western civilization as well. You know, r- start with, you know, Minoan civilization. Start with Mesopotamia. Start with Egypt, and and then work your way up all to to you know to the Industrial Revolution, and 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 read a lot of comparative history. I think one of the books that that some of the books that have influenced me most in recent years in my thinking about how China has developed have been you know comparative historical or or political works by the likes of Yuval Harari. I just recently read, and I think most profoundly. Francis Fukuyama, uh, whose two books, The Origins of Political Order and Political Order and the, Political Decay. Yep. I like that two He's books, a, actually. And that's supposed oh, to be a third book has, in the world, right? Yeah. They're, 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 I don't know what's, what's next, but these two already are just, are just tremendously eye-opening. Mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend them to anyone. Have you read Joseph Needham? Yes, I have. I mean, ah. I've, I've read volume. I have them sitting right behind me right now. I have like volumes one through six. Uh, I, I usually take them out just as references when I want to, you know, think about the pedal powered water wheel or, or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just the essay, the, the essays that open volume one are, are amazing. I also have read about Needham in uh, the Simon Winchester book, The Man Who Loved China. You actually get quite a good overview in that. Actually, there is a Joseph Needham Institute in Cambridge. I and, figured. Yeah. I thought you would say that. Yeah, that, yes. that your your professor had studied underneath him. Uh, yeah, and I, I can tell you a very interesting anecdote. When Jiang Zemin visited Cambridge, I think in the uh, early two thousand, uh, he was there for something that Needham had brought back during the Nanjing massacre. It was a genealogy book. Oh wow! Yeah, that was the reason why he was there. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, in fact, my master was hosting Jiang Zemin in our college in Darwin. 
Oh, wonderful! Yeah, yeah. So that was that was how he, when when he was telling me, oh, he's a gay, and he actually explained to the whole backstory of Ninum and all that stuff. So it got us also very interested in what was going on then, and it, China was just about to open up actually. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, Ninum. Wow, what a what a what a remarkable man. Yep. And it comes to my final question, but I'm definitely going to get you back on Kaiser because I think Wonderful. there's a lot to talk about. How do yeah, my audience of, find you? How do they find me? Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm the easiest person. Um, I mean, you could start with my Facebook page. I've I post almost everything publicly. Um, I, I like to kind of keep a, a, a dialogue about China going on my Facebook page. On Twitter, I'm just Kaiser Kuo, all one word, mm. uh, K-A-I-S-E-R-K-U-O. And on Quora, uh, just that's 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 probably you know we'll we find quite a bit of my writing these days, uh, and then of course the Seneca podcast, uh, which I hope you'll you'll be good, so good as to put a link up to. Mm, I will put a link on it, um, <laughs> and definitely we'll put your Quora link as well on 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 the show notes. Yeah, so those are the four places where I show up in public most these days. I, I give a number of talks. I, I do quite a bit of public speaking, and there are some of those that have found their way onto YouTube, but nothing nothing that great. <laughs> and it's all a little out of date. But yeah, I mean, if I'm in the neighborhood, please come by, say hello. Uh, I'd be uh, glad to to, uh, to to chat with anyone who's interested in the topics that I'm I'm, I'm keen on. Okay, cool. You can find me at bernardlong.com or at blongcw or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and Acast. And please drop us comments, ratings and even drop me a personal email at any time. Once again, Kaiser, many thanks for talking about China. I think this is one of the best conversations I have. Thank you, Bernard. I have really enjoyed myself too.